Because you can take that bulletin and you can flip it back over because we are in week four of Sexodus. Sexodus is a series that we're in. Our church goes off series. So we talk about a specific topic for a couple weeks. And for these last couple weeks, we're talking about Exodus and sex. Exodus from the Bible and sex, the actual act of sex. We put them together and it makes one word called Sexodus. But what we're talking about is relationships in our culture because in our culture, we have a very jacked up view of relationships. Who can agree with me? We learned some pretty jacked up stuff from our culture. So the first week, you heard Pastor Steve talk about Jesus has to have the keys of your life before you start a relationship. You have to put your foundation in Jesus first. The second week, we talked about sex because our version of it, how we understand it through our culture, is jacked up. So we talked about sex, the gift that it is, what the Bible says about sex, the plan that God has for you and your sex life is a good plan. And last week we talked about in the season that you're getting prepared to be married. Some of you are in that preparation season. We have a pretty young church. So some of us are in a period of our life where we're not married yet. We're getting ready to, be, to get married. And there's some things that you have to do when you're in that season to get ready to have the relationship that God wants you to have. Steve talked about limiting your time, your talk, and your what? What? Your touch. Your time, your talk, and your touch. Those are very important things to limit. If you want to have a successful relationship that God intends to have you. And if you want to catch up on any of our messages, this is a side note. We have all of our podcasts available on iTunes. So all you have to do is go to journeypa.tv, search for it on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. It will get delivered to your iTunes and you'll never have to miss a thing again. But how we're relating sex and relationships in our culture is to the Bible. The beginning of the Bible, there's five books. Those books are called the Pentateuch. And it's a story of how God created the world, how God chose a people called the Israelites, and how he took those Israelites out of slavery into their own land. And there's a lot of drama involved in that process. So it's from the book of Numbers that we're speaking about. And we're talking about the Israelites being taken up from slavery into where God wants them. See, our key point about relationships is this. I want you to remember this. It says, usually a flawed marriage began in a flawed relationship dictated by thoughts running through a flawed mind by a flawed person. It's a lot of flaws. I want you to get it. Usually a flawed marriage began in a flawed relationship dictated by thoughts running through a flawed mind by a flawed person. And we don't want that for you today because in our culture, it's really easy to get advice everywhere. You can go all over TV, all over the internet. You can get advice. You can see talking heads just telling you things to do with your life, secrets to a better marriage. They're all awful. Secrets to a better job. And they're all usually awful. How many of you guys have ever received bad advice in your life? That's like a gimme. I'm throwing you a softball. Bad advice. Um, I've been in an awkward phase in my life. It started at 13. I don't know if you guys can remember when you're 13. It's been going on for about 19 years. Um, At age 13, I hit a growth spurt in only height uh, and not weight. So I grew up as tall as I am now, a little over six foot, but I gained no weight. uh, And I also got acne and I also got braces and I also broke my leg. So uh, you went from, uh, yeah, Amen. So you went from someone who was not cool to begin with to someone who is really not cool um, and who is not coordinated, because I'm not coordinated now, but uh, some of you, we play basketball together, and I hate running in public, but I became this very awkward teenager. And then when I was in ninth grade, I moved schools to a new school as uh, at the peak of my awkwardness, I moved there. Uh, and it was a growing season <laughs> in my life that just kind of hasn't stopped, but um, I decided a good way to make friends at my new school, think about it, is I joined a special choir at school because that's what cool kids do. They join the chamber singers, right? No. 
So I joined the chamber singers because I was like, well, if there's no guys there, at least there's some girls. I like girls. I'll be like the best out of like a big fish in a small pond. So I joined there. But there's one girl I liked, but I had this problem where I had these giant pimples all over my face. Not like all over, but like just like six or seven heaters. You know what I'm talking about? Like the ones that are like right, always right here on the end of my nose. So I look like Rudolph in puberty. Um, that happens. So the peak of this awkwardness. But we're getting ready to go on a trip, and I knew that I was going to get to spend time with this one girl, and I got this advice that if I put toothpaste on my face, that it would make my pimples disappear. And I know there's at least one dermatologist in the room, and you're saying, this is bad advice. Do not put toothpaste on your face. But I did. I put 99-cent AIM toothpaste all over my face in the hopes that it would make me good-looking by the morning so I could be with Christine, that she would love me then. But what happened was all my pimples stayed. I woke up in the morning, and my pimples stayed, and my face dried out. And I had rings around all of my blemishes of dry skin that lotion couldn't heal. And then I remained single for the next four years. And I don't say that just to end my joke. Like, uh, I I literally, I remained single until the last month of high school. And that failed too. So that was some bad advice, and that was pre-internet. I couldn't Google it. We had dial-up internet. All I knew was instant messenger. I couldn't fact check it. So toothpaste on your face doesn't work. But we get a lot of bad advice on marriage. So before we talk about what God says about marriage, I think we should talk about some of the bad advice, some of the myths of our culture about marriage. Because a lot of you are married, or a lot of you are heading towards marriage, and I want you to be informed that a lot of what we hear is wrong. So myth number one is that you have to love yourself first. Who has heard you have, you need to love yourself first. Before you love someone else, you have to love yourself. Amen. Amen. Uh, No. That's wrong. It's not in the Bible. I'm going to say some things in my sermon that say, oh, the Bible says, or in the Word of God it says, the reason I say those things are because we believe the Bible is the source of all truth, that, that the Bible is perfect. So we get all of our wisdom and truth from the Bible. So some things I say are going to be directly from the Bible, some things are going to be my opinion. But the Bible, one thing it never says is that you have to love yourself before you love someone else. In fact, it says, in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves as a bad thing. There's a huge difference between knowing your worth in Christ, though, and loving yourself. That's a big difference. I want my kids to know that. I want me and my wife to know that. There's a difference in knowing who you are in Christ, not who you are in yourself, but who you are in Christ, what that means. If you know Jesus, he calls you a son or a daughter of the living God, so you know your worth in Christ. But it never says, love yourself before you love someone else. Myth number two, I heard this before I got married. Who heard it? You can look at someone else, just don't touch. Really? I'm the only one? I'm going to check your internet histories. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to find out if you're lying. See, I heard this advice, and you hear this a lot. That before I was getting married, uh, people said to me, well, you're going to be with one woman for the rest of your life. You see this on movies. Are you ready to do this? Sex with one woman for the rest of your life? That sounds awful. So you hear this advice, and the solution to a lot of people is you can look, but you can't touch. And what I'm going to talk about is a little bit mature content, but I think you can handle it because the average age a person views pornography is age seven. Did you know that? Yeah, so it's just out there. So, one way we do that as a culture is that we are a culture who is addicted to pornography. And I say addicted just like you're addicted to a drug. Paul in the Bible warns us against sexual sin because he said, watch out for this. It's not above other sins, but you do this sin unto yourself, and it has no end. So pornography invades our culture. Over 80% of guys regularly look at it. Over 30% of women regularly look at pornography. And that will invade every part of your sexual life and your identity. And then you'll never be satisfied by anything else because that has no end. And I want to warn you against that today. 
The best advice my dad ever gave me, I think, was don't ever look at pornography. He's a pastor and he would counsel people. He said, that will ruin your sex life forever. I want to encourage you today. If that's you and you struggle with that, please talk to me afterwards. I have some resources I want to tell you about. Or if you haven't looked at it, you kept yourself pure, stay far away. But pornography is not just the magazines or the illicit sites that we go to. We don't have to work very hard to find pornography. It's just a click away. But it even invades, because our culture is so saturated with sex, it invades even the things that we let our eyes see. See, uh, I'm going to be real with you for the most part today. I didn't always have the convictions that I have. I'm 32. I didn't follow Jesus for real uh, until I was about 25. So I would view things. I was never really into porn, but I would view things in movies, uh, in media that were definitely not healthy. Like, we have those in our culture today that I see Christians, because we're so saturated with it, talk about shows like Orange is the New Black and Game of Thrones, and you might say those are great shows, Um, but what I would say is this, uh, you're going to get yourself really screwed up in your view of sex if you're watching other people have sex all the time, and that's right on those shows. I turned on Orange is the New Black because someone told me it was good, and right in the intro is a graphic sex scene. So you might say, well, that's not a big deal, you're being religious, but what I would ask you is this, well, would you ever look at a married couple having sex through the windows? Would you ever go up to a married couple's window and say, I just want to watch them make love through the blinds? I would hope not. You know why? Because that's perverted. People call you a peeping Tom and you get arrested. But for most of us, Hollywood is the pimp and we're paying for it. I didn't make that up. Ray Comfort did, but it's true. Hollywood is our pimp. And for the most part, even in the Christian world, we pay for it. And you might be like, well, we're in church. That's not true. Well, if that were true, then our church, churches in general would have a lower divorce rate then we'd have a lower affair rate. But I can tell you what, on this side of it, working in a church and growing up in a family, that working in a church, our church culture is not much different than the world, and that shouldn't be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we're in a culture that says you can look, but don't touch. All these things wrap up in if you want a marriage like no one else, you're going to have to do things that no one else will do. And God calls us to have marriages and relationships like nobody else. Your marriage and your relationship should look really weird to your friends who don't know Jesus. They should look countercultural to that. They should think that you are nuts, that if you're not married, that you're waiting to have sex until you're married because you want the best sex life. I can't say it. People should think you're weird that you and your husband, you and your wife spend time only with each other, that you don't do lunch with people of the opposite sex that you guys don't call and talk to members of the opposite sex, that you are careful with the time that you spend, you're careful with how you treat each other, you're protective over your sex life and what you let into your eyes. That should look really weird to your non-Christian friends, but that's how God calls us to be. Myth number three, what happens in blank stays in blank. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens on the internet stays on the internet. What happens on a work trip stays on a work trip. I saw this firsthand before I did this job, before I worked at church, I was in sales for a pretty long time, and I like being in sales. And a lot of times if you have or had a sales job, you can go on trips. So you go on these training trips and do things. And one of my first trips I went on when I was newly married is that I went to Madison, Wisconsin, which is just a rager of a city in the Midwest. I'll tell you what. But you go on these trips and you're with a bunch of people you don't know. And typically uh, they give you a lot of alcohol and take you out to eat. And you just kind of hang out and do that all night. And I wasn't really opposed to those things at that time in my life. But one thing I did notice, because I still had a moral center I knew about Jesus, is that one guy who was kind of one of our chaperones was closer to my parents' age, so he spent his time showing people pictures of his, his kids, his wife, his little grandkids, and things like that. But as the night grew on and uh, people had a little bit more fun, we ended up back at the hotel bar with probably 50, 75 people. And uh, I noticed this guy hitting on this girl, who was like 21, 22, obviously drunk. And I was shocked, because I'd 
even though I wasn't really following Jesus, I wasn't used to seeing that. I was pretty naive. So I was kind of freaking out. Some people, I'm like, look at this. This is ridiculous. These people aren't Christians, so what, what would be the difference? So he ended up leaving and taking her back to his hotel room. They, they were just out. And I remember asking the people I was with, the other chaperones, a, a guy and a girl who were married with kids. And I was like, can you believe he would do this? I'm like, this is shocking. And they're like, well, what happens on the road, we don't talk about. It just happens on the road. Amen. See, your life should look different. Your life as a believer, your marriage as a believer should look different. So one of the things that we see is that in our culture, what happens in wherever you go stays there and it doesn't. The Bible says the opposite. Be sure your sins will find you out. Whatever is done in darkness, Jesus always brings to light. See, our culture doesn't value the things that we value. So when we get to today, when we look at the story of the Israelites leaving slavery in Egypt and we look at Moses and what God is doing in Moses' life and the laws that he's given, he gets some good advice from his father-in-law. We're to get some good advice. So I want you to jump with me to Numbers 10. The Israelites are leaving Egypt, and they're leaving with about 2 million people. 600,000 men, 2 million people overall, and they're organized into camps like armies. Finally, as the rear guard for all the units, the divisions of the camp of Dan set out under their standard. Ahazer, son of Amshadai, was in command. Pegiel, son of Okran, was over the division of the march of the Israelite divisions as they set out. Now Moses said to Hobab, son of Rule the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place for about which the Lord said, I will give to you. Come with us and we will treat you well for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. That's our nation. He answered, no, I'm not going to go. I'm going to go back to my own land and my own people. But Moses said to his father-in-law, please don't leave us. You know where we should camp in the wilderness and you can be our eyes. If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. So they set forth from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during the three days to find them a place to rest. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set up from camp. See, Moses sought wisdom from someone who has been there well, and that's what we should do. Moses had 600,000 other strong men with him, and he chose wisdom from a man who has been there before because he knew the territory. See, God... A lot of times we look at the rules of the Old Testament that God laid down and we don't understand them because our culture has no reference to it. The Ten Commandments and the 200 and some other ones that go along with it. God was calling his people to be holy. And what holy means very simply is to be separate. God was separating them from the culture they were in, which was wicked, kind of like a nation that rhymes with from America. He was making them a people for himself because he was separate from their gods. And he was making them completely new and that's how God wants to do in our life and our relationships. Proverbs says this. It says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. See, one of the things that you can do if you're married is you can seek wise counsel from someone who has been there before. I'm not going to seek counsel from a guy who I think is a crappy husband and a horrible dad. I'm going to seek counsel from someone who's been there and someone who's done that. I'm going to talk to my grandma and grandpa who've been married for like 60 years and are 88 years old and love Jesus and speak highly of each other. Despite of the very bad times they had and the good times, they speak highly of each other because they made it a commitment to the, excuse me, to the Lord. One of the ways that you can do that is if you look at the book of Joshua. Joshua is the guy who took over Israel after Moses. He led those people. And in that time... People started to rebel and want to follow their own gods. And Joshua basically said, you guys can do whatever you want. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And as a guy, as a dad, as a husband, that, that gets me going. Because this culture that we live in is crazy. But I can say 
God, I trust in you. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you can say the same thing too. Even if you're not married, one day, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, we want to engineer our lives, this is the first point, for the last day and not the first day. We want to look long out of our marriage and we want to say, you know what? When we grow up in my life, when I grow up, I want to pray that my kids grow up, my three kids grow up and love Jesus and love his house. That they grow up and they love their spouses and they serve them well. That I have two boys, I want my boys to be strong men in the Lord and I want my girl to be a woman of the Lord without fear. I want me and my wife to live a long life together if God allows and I want us to get to the end of our lives and I want her, frankly, to die first so I can preach her funeral and then I want her to go home, be with the Lord and then I will after her. And you might think that is a weird dream to have. No, I heard another pastor talk about it. I thought, that's, that's great. I can picture no greater life, not fame, not fortune, but living a long life with my wife, both of us loving Jesus through the hard times, through the good times, and saying, you know what? She's going to meet the Lord. I'm going to know that she was taken care of at the end, and then one day I'm going to meet the Lord too on our preacher funeral. God is a faithful God, and that's what I want, and that's what I want for you today. And one of the ways that you can do that is you can plan your life for the last day, not the first. Your marriage, your wedding day, if that's approaching, that doesn't matter. It really doesn't. You're going to forget it. I forget my wedding day. I forget the flowers. I had no choice in choosing them. I forget the food. I had no choice in choosing it. I forget everything that happened. I remember my honeymoon because it was awesome. But I forget my wedding, and you will too. But I want to engineer my life for the last day. And some of the ways that you can do that is you and your house will serve the Lord. You and your house come to the house of the Lord. See, when we do church, when we have church experiences, this isn't just so we can get together and have a club. I would not waste my time with doing that. I'm not a social person. But there's something very significant about being continually in the presence of God, serving God faithfully as a family that will change the dynamic of your house and generations after you. There's something very special about the presence of the Lord. I don't say that just because I'm a worship leader by trade. I love the presence of God. I wasn't always that way, but I love the presence of God, and there's nothing like it in a church setting. It's very different when I'm worshiping God by myself early in the morning than I'm worshiping God with the people of God, lifting up his name, declaring that he is greater and I am less. So one of the ways that you serve the Lord is you get in his house. Another way that you practically serve the Lord is through your finances. Unsexy thing to talk about. Let me tell you, most marriages will fail not because of infidelity, not because of anything like that. They will fail because of financial stress. So one of the ways you practically plan for your future and engineer for the last day is that you understand that your finances are given to you by God, not to own, but to steward. Steward just means to manage. It's kind of a church word. But if you set a standard of generosity in your life through your family right now, especially before you have kids, that'll change the dynamic of your entire life and generations after you. See, and if you do it before you have kids, it's going to be way easier because after you have kids and a mortgage and lots of other crazy things, it's going to be really hard to start being faithful to God without cutting a lot out of your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? But if you start right now saying, God, you are first, God always blesses you. See, um, we talked about a little, we have these pre-service meetings, and one thing that I've just been going over uh, in my mind and my heart lately, God has been saying, God's unity, unity always attracts the blessing of God. Unity in a relationship, in a church, in a marriage, always attracts the blessing of God. And I want the blessing of God, and I want our church to have the blessing of God, and I want you to have the blessing of God. And how that works is unity, that you say to your husband, to your wife, we need to be on the same page. Practically, I know your top four priorities. You know my top four priorities. My priorities in my life, very simply, Jesus, my wife, my kids, then my job. You need to be able to list off your spouse's priorities, and you need to get on the same page with those priorities, or unless your house is going to be in disunity, and God has a hard time blessing disunity. You got that? 
That's a lot of words that I just said. Number two, the grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. The grass isn't greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it. I know that last year we said that the grass is always greenest over the septic tank. But we're going to change it. The grass is greener where you water. What you give attention to typically tends to flourish. It's not a hard concept. What you water tends to grow. But because we live in a culture that is based off instant gratification, that we have access to social media, we see a very fake life of everybody, that we only post our highlights, that we see the perfect family picture without all the other eight crappy pictures because no one's going to take a picture when their kids are screaming and they're yelling at each other. I would, but I'm not allowed to use social media, my wife said, because it makes my heart wicked, more wicked. But because, because we have such access to false information, we think that someone else always has it better than us. But really, we need to invest into the person that God has given us. The grass is greener where you water. One of the ways you do that is that you realize that no one ever dies wishing they spent more time at work. That's true. I love my job. I love that I get to work at church. But if I was to know I was going to leave this place and die, I wouldn't be like, dang, I wish I would have gone to work more. No, I want my wife and kids to know that I love them. I want to have spent quality time with them. And you should want the same thing too. So you should know that work is like your fourth priority. Jesus, your husband or wife, your kids, then work. See, we can also do this, but we can never be present with our families. I know I can do that. I can come home from work, and I've not seen my kids all day, so my kids are little, so if you ever have little kids, you know that they all say daddy like 20 times a minute. It's really annoying, but kind of cute that I'll come home, daddy, 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 and I'll say, I'm here. I'm listening to what you're saying, but I'm really not because I'm on my phone looking at guitars on the internet, and it's just as easy. I think we all struggle with this, and my wife will lovingly tell me, stop looking at your phone and be present with your kids because right now you're sinning. You're an idiot, which is a loving thing to say to me, but... One of the ways that you water your own grass, you water what God has given you, is that you're present with your family, that you're truly there. So that means you have to turn your phone off, turn distraction off, limit your TV time, do whatever you have to do, but you're not going to die wishing that you knew more about someone else on the internet. You're not going to die wishing you spent more time at work. And you need to understand that bad times will pass. See, uh, just yesterday, we, me and my wife were in Lancaster where we, we, are, we were first married and lived in the city of Lancaster until we moved here, and we went by our first house, uh, and in that house, it was cute, it was really small, we had like no bills, we had no kids for the first part of it, and, uh, and we fought more than you could imagine two people ever fighting. I don't say that in like a funny way, uh, I say that in a messed up priority kind of way, uh, because we fought a lot, and there was a lot of repenting that had to happen on both parts in that house, um, but when I walked by it, Yesterday, I only thought of the good stuff. I only thought of trying to learn how to cook with somebody else in a kitchen that's probably six feet wide. I only remembered having our first baby there, and we didn't have a bedroom for her, so she's in a back hallway. You remember the cute stuff, but you'll hear that when you talk to people who have been in love for a long time. The bad times pass, especially if you know Jesus. If you endure, the bad times pass, but the good times, they endure. The good memories endure, and God will always be faithful in your life. So I want to encourage you, if you are in this bad place right now, in a dry season. God is faithful. He is faithful to you. If you build for the last day, if you realize that you water your own garden, he is always faithful. See, like I said, my grandparents are really old. They're 88 years old. And my grandma, she has Alzheimer's now. So she doesn't remember really anything that happens right now. She doesn't really know who I am sometimes. I have to remind her that I have three kids and things like that because she views me as young John. Um, But 
What she does remember really well, and I think that uh, it kind of makes sense, she remembers very vividly when her and my grandpa started dating. It was the start of World War II. My grandpa joined the Marines at age 17. This isn't really in my notes, but my grandpa joined the Marines at age 17, um, and he went to fight in war. And she remembers uh, all that. She remembers them dating. She remembers him coming home after being in the Pacific, seeing crazy war, and them eloping in the first part of their life, and how their parents were mad that they eloped. And she will say things like, I still remember him in his uniform, and he is still as good looking as ever. Like, you take wisdom from people who have done it well. And I can tell you, for truth, I know my grandparents had hard times in their marriage. I know that they went through a separation. My dad has told me about it. I know that it was a big deal. But one of the things my dad told me is that he said, you know what? The reason they reconciled is that above anything, they had made a commitment to the Lord, and they were going to honor that. See, the grass is greener where you water it. See, one thing we need to remember as we wrap up today is that the person that we marry and the person that we're married to is not Jesus. That's a really easy thing. We have an epidemic where we misplace our expectations that we think that the person that God has given us, the person that we're married to, is supposed to be all-knowing. They're supposed to be all-loving. They're supposed to be able to forgive any sin. They're supposed to know everything about us, how to love us, our love languages. They're supposed to know how to accommodate us. But really, that's incredibly selfish. See, we have to know that our spouse isn't Jesus. Billy Graham has, uh, has been an evangelist for a long time, since the late 40s. Some of you have heard of him. He's the most famous, probably the most successful evangelist in the last couple hundred years. And he's nearing the end of his life and the end of his marriage right now. But he's been married to a lady with a lot of wisdom named Ruth, Ruth Bell Graham. And she said this. She said, is it, a fool, it is a foolish woman who expects her husband's to be to her, which only Jesus Christ himself can be, always ready to forgive, totally understanding, unendingly patient, invariably tender and loving, unfailing in every area, anticipating every need, and making more than adequate provision. Such, such expectations put a man or woman under an impossible strain. It is absolutely, absolutely impossible to be everything for your spouse. If you expect that, from your husband or from your wife, your relationship is going to end in divorce or a long, unhappy life. And that is not the, the life God intends us. What Jesus says in his word, it says, he has come to give us life and life to the full, not just eternal salvation. But I think Jesus really cares about the intimate details about our life on earth. He cares about every single part of your life, all the details. Everything matters to him. You might say, well, I have this problem and it's a small problem, but what you really have is a really small view of God because every problem is small to God. Every issue is tiny to him. He is a big God. And just to be really frank with you, I need God to be that big because one thing marriage has shown me is that I am incredibly wicked without him. You are incredibly wicked without Christ. My spouse, my wife is beautiful, but she is incredibly wicked without the grace of Jesus Christ. You are marrying and have married a sinner. I am a sinner. I am in need of grace. I don't stand here as a perfect person, but I can tell you fight after fight after hard time after hard time in my marriage. But I can tell you above everything, we serve a faithful God. We serve a God who is our redeemer. We serve a God who's forgiver and that you only understand these things through Jesus Christ, through no one else. So if you're in this place right now and you don't know how you got here, and you're like, I'm not even married. This applies to you because odds are you will get married. But to have a successful marriage, you have to, have to, have to know Jesus. You have to invest in your spouse. You have to do really practical things like putting your kids underneath your spouse. 
Like spending time with just your spouse, investing into them. Your kids are not the center of your marriage. I can tell you this from experience and talking to couples whose kids run their life so they are worn out when it comes to each other. What my kids need to see is they need to see that mommy and daddy love each other and that below Jesus, mommy is my number one priority. She is my wife. You are secondary. Kids are selfish by nature. And unless you kill that in them, they're going to be the biggest brat this world has ever seen. And when they leave your house, they're going to ruin somebody's life. They're going to ruin a husband or a wife's life if you let them be like that. That is the truth. That sounds really scary, doesn't it? But being a parent and being a husband and being a wife is a scary thing. You have a lot of responsibility. What kids need to see is that daddy loves mommy, mommy loves daddy. And probably it's time for you to go to bed so mommy and daddy can be alone. I don't understand how we talk about sexitus without talking about that. Your kids need to go to bed so you can be alone with your wife and enjoy what God has given you to enjoy in the context that he's given you to enjoy. Can I get an amen up in here? That's, that is right. I mean, I'm guessing the only one who likes to have sex, but whatever. See, I believe that. How do you talk about Jesus when we talk about that? But I think it all has to do with Jesus because in our culture, it becomes a taboo thing to talk about. You can't talk about sex, especially not in church. But because we're so jacked up and sold a false bill of goods about sex that we can't talk about it here, but God talks about it in his word. He has a whole book dedicated with some pretty explicit acts in the book, if you actually read it in context, about sex. So you should figure out how that works according to God's plan. How that works is a successful, healthy marriage built on God's principles. And that's what I want for you today. That's what we want as a church. We want our church to be filled with healthy marriages, healthy daddies, healthy mommies, and healthy families that pass on a legacy because this church cannot die in 15 years. We're building a church for generations and generations. I want my kids to work here. I want your kids to come here. I want it all to happen because we have marriages that honor God. Maybe some of you are on your second marriage. Make this the marriage that honors God. See, there's a lot of things in here, but what the Bible says is that in Proverbs... That's in the Bible. It says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. I'm going to say that again so it makes sense. So as water reflects your face, so your life reflects your heart. How you live your life reflects the condition of your heart. And there's no greater mirror in your life than marriage. No one else will show you your glaring insecurities. No one else will show you your selfishness. No one else will show you your bad habits and your quirks like your husband and your wife. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. Nothing has brought me closer to Jesus than being married and having a family because I realize the depth of my need for God, that there's so many things, so many insecurities that I bring into this relationship that my wife for sure cannot fulfill. I'm going to place on her a burden that she cannot handle unless I go to the cross with it. See, You can get mad at the mirror, that's your spouse all you want. You can get mad at her or him because they're not fulfilling you, but realistically, all you're seeing is your reflection in them. You're seeing all your insecurities thrown on them and coming back to you, and you can't deal with it because it's actually your problem, and they're not your healer. Jesus is your healer, and Jesus is not far off, but the Bible says that he is close. In Limerick, Jesus is close to you right now. He is close to me right now, and it's not like he's unable to forgive them and change you. He is able. I need that God to be big. When Jesus left the earth, he gave us his Holy Spirit, his comforter, so we could have perfect peace. And we live in a culture that has no peace. We have marriages that have no peace, that have no security, that have affairs, that have brokenness, that have people who have no clue how to live with each other because we don't go where we're supposed to go, and that's to the cross. And the cross is available to us today. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit to give us power to do what we need to do but we don't run there. 
And I want you today, if that's you in this room, because that's everybody, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to get a chance to run to the cross today so he can change your eternity but give you life on earth. If you're married today, you're going to get a chance to run to the cross so he can give you new life. If you're hurting and broken in your marriage today, you have security, hope, and freedom that's found only in the cross today. Let's stand to our feet right now because God is moving in this house. God is moving in Limerick. So all across this place and in Limerick, with their heads bowed and our eyes closed, we're not in the presence of someone who is unable to save. We're in the presence of a holy God, the God that knows you, the God that holds your life, the God that has counted your days and numbered them. He knows the beginning from the end. He's the alpha and the omega is what his word says. In the book of Job, Job is afflicted, Job is hurt, Job is lost. And his friends are asking him to give up on God. But one thing Job says, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he is standing on the earth. What does that mean for you today? That means despite who you are and what you've done and what's been done to you, our Redeemer lives, and one day, he will set things right. Not only in creation, but he will set things right in our hearts. That grace is available to us right now. That healing is available to you right now, to your marriage, to your relationships, to your life. And I need that to be so in my life because without Christ, I'm wicked. And I think without Christ, we are all lawbreakers. If God's word shows us anything is that we have all broken God's law. We all have all ended the peace. There is no one righteous, not anyone on stage, not anyone at church. There is no one righteous, not one. But salvation is found only through Jesus Christ, the perfect man. Fully God, fully man came to earth and died in our place for our sins. In the book of Isaiah 53, it says that God has placed our punishment fully on Jesus. That the debt that I owe, the the debt that you owe because of your sin and my sin, because we are jacked up. We don't have to pay the penalty for it, but it was placed on Jesus. So if that means today that you're an adulterer, Jesus became adultery for you. That means today if you're addicted to pornography, Jesus became your pornography addiction for you so you don't have to wear that identity around. That means if you're a liar, Jesus became your lying self and your lies on the cross and God slew him for you so you wouldn't have to take that punishment. That means every broken thing in your life, God can make right because of Jesus. And it's not some mathematical formula. In his word, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God the Father has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Not tomorrow, not the next day, but right now at this very moment that you make a decision to follow Christ, his grace is willing and ready. We are saved by grace alone. So across this room in Limerick, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, as Pastor John is up in the front there, if that's you today, I want you to step out boldly without fear. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So freedom reigns in this place today. Freedom reigns in Limerick today. If you're watching online, freedom reigns there today because of Jesus Christ. And if that's you, if you are living a a life apart from Christ, All I want you to do is raise your hand with me and say, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. There is no greater decision. There is nothing that you have done or has been done to you that will ever separate you from his love. But if that's you today in this place, if that's you today in Limerick or watching the line, I just want you to agree with me and say, Pastor, I want to make a decision right now 
to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a moment. If that's you, I want to pray with you. I want to encourage you. And I want your life and everything that goes with it and your eternity to be changed forever. If that's you, I see your hand in the back right now. I want your life to be changed. I see one hand in the back. At Limerick, if you have your hand up, keep it up right now so Pastor John can see you. We want to pray for you all across this room. Let's pray. Father God, we need your freedom and we need your healing and we need your right thinking and we need your power to live a life apart from what our culture says about sex and about relationships and about our identity. Let our identity to be found only in you, that our joy could be found only in you, God that we trust only in you, that today we kill our idols of more. We kill our idols of self-gratification. We kill our idols of sex. And we take on the freedom that only you have. I pray for marriages in this place today that where there is deadness, you would breathe new life like only you can in the name of Jesus. I pray that there where is single people right now, that you would give them a holy fire to live only for you, that their passions would be only for you. I pray that for the dating couple in this place who is trying to stay pure, I pray that you would encourage them to stay pure today. And I pray for those of us who are broken and who are lost, that we'd understand that the healing that we need is found only in you, that we wouldn't have to run anymore. And we say these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Church, that's good. We're going to clap for that.